The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Thank you, Maureen. Um, So hello, everyone. Hello. Um, Tonight, what I'd like to talk about is um, in praise of uncertainty. In praise of uncertainty. So over the last few months, I've been doing a, a lot of personal work and thinking around the subject of tribalism and what makes us so sure of our position and them so sure of their position. And as part of this, I've recently read a book published a few years ago by a man named uh, Jonathan Haidt, H-A-I-D-T. And the name of the book is The Righteous Mind. Sounds like it's right down in the alley of what I've been thinking about. And it turns out it is. And I found it quite a remarkable book. So uh, he is a moral psychologist, and he's developed a theory about how people make decisions, moral decisions. And uh, he has six foundations of morality, and that's not what we're going to talk about. There are things like care and fairness and loyalty and authority and liberty or oppression, those kinds of things that go into the foundations of why what forms people's moral psychology. And then he applies this theory to uh, the the spectrum of political views and how people might think about them and work with them efficiently and hopefully peacefully. So what I want to talk about are two ideas that he has stimulated for me. And uh, one of them is the assertion that people don't actually make rational decisions. They make decisions emotionally and then rationally justify those decisions. And there's a lot of work in this realm that's been done in neuroscience that, you know, the amygdala, which is the thing that that causes immediate emotional reactions, works long before the cortex, which does all the rational work, ever finds out about the event. And so, given that piece of information, uh, it, it behooves us to be aware of what our emotional state is, how the mind reacts to emotional states, and to know when we're reacting to something as opposed to the rational mind that we might all wish was always present. So the way he talks about it is, you know, one is very fast, the emotional response is very fast, and, you know, the other is, well, it's kind of after the fact. So... What he says is that people make decisions and then try to justify that. He, he phrases this, intuitions comes, come first, strategic reasoning second. Intuitions come first, strategic reasoning second. Okay, so I've been kind of working about that. And then the other thing he talked about was how, how people might come to grip with the fact that we really have different moral foundations that are prime for us. So maybe my prime concern is care for someone and a lack of harm. And maybe yours is loyalty. And believe it or not, we can come to totally different conclusions based on the primacy of how we view those foundations. So what he spoke to was the power of moral humility. The power of moral humility. I found that a really interesting idea. So he described an event where his wife said something to him and he automatically made a response uh, that was to justify his actions, of course. And this was over something rather trivial like, you know, who cleaned the kitchen countertop. You know, we're not talking about a major moral decision here. But he, he was writing about moral decisions, and he fi- he realized he'd actually mm, distorted the truth. What he said was true, just not in the order in which he described it. 
And he, he suddenly realized that he was quite capable of lying to his wife because that's then how he saw it. Pretty trivial thing. But the way he described it is he said, I finally understood, not just cerebrally, but intuitively and with an open heart, the admonitions of sages from so many eras and cultures warning us about self-righteousness. And he quoted Jesus talking about, don't worry about the speck in your neighbor's eye until you've taken the log out of your own eye. And, and he referred to a phrase from the Dhammapada, it's easy to see the faults of others, but hard to see one's own. One sifts out the faults of others like chaff, but one conceals one's own as a cheat conceals a bad throw of the dice. So, this led me to consider what does he mean by moral humility and what do I mean by moral humility? How would I interpret that? And I saw it uh, largely as a matter of holding views and that when we hold views, no matter how benevolent, how true they are, how skillful, it's still holding. Now, hate would call this Uh, being trapped inside a moral matrix. But I call it holding on to views. And the Buddha calls it suffering. This holding on to views. So so when I was looking at this, I ran across a chapter in the book of uh, Food for the Heart, which is a collection of teachings by Ajahn Chah, who is a Thai master. Uh, And this particular chapter is entitled, Not Sure, The Standard of the Noble Ones. And I found this chapter just so deeply intuitive to what I was thinking about. So he talked about how um, when he was a young monk, there he noticed that people would come to the monastery and they would take, take the path of the monastery during the rainy season and then disrobe at the end of the rainy season. And there were people who judged that this was really a shame, this was really too bad, why are they doing that, can't they see this is the path? And he had a lot of faith in what he was doing as a monk, truly believed in it. But he said... I wasn't yet sure of my own feelings. I was too stirred up. But within me, I felt they were all foolish. It's difficult to go forth, easy to disrobe. These guys don't have much merit. They think that the way of the world is more useful than the way of Dhamma. I thought like this, but I didn't say anything. I just watched my own mind. And he thought some more about it, and he noticed the coming and going, and it became less important to him whether people took the path or disrobed. He realized this wasn't an important thing, but that he learned about it, and he said, I still wasn't sure how long my faith would last. Not sure. I wasn't sure. I had great faith, but I didn't know how long it would last. Seeing that things happen and seeing that things change doesn't really change the fact that we are attached to them and that we want them, think certain things to be true. And we don't actually know how things are going to unravel or how they're going to build. We think we know, but we don't actually know. And to the extent that we can be open to all possibilities, we are likely to be surprised and maybe not so sure. Not so sure. What he said is, when it comes to the training of the mind, it isn't easy to find a good standard if you haven't yet developed a witness within yourself. When he went on to explain what this meant in his practice, it had to do with the mindfulness of watching the mind and seeing, oh, this is anger, this is elation, this is sadness, this is lust. Knowing what it is, seeing it, 
seeing it clearly. Oh, this is what it is. If you don't have any knowledge of what it is, you don't recognize it. It's not something that's available to you in a split-second decision when you have to come up with something. This is a habit of mindfulness, a habit of watching the mind. Not the way, the why of it, not the result of it, but, oh, this is what is happening. Seeing what is really happening. Oh, this is what's happening. You know, the, um, tonight I had a really delightful thing happen. It was so delightful to me. And I was, it was inter- I, I involved, I sent a gift to my nephew, and, which is something I've never done for this nephew before. But I recently saw him on a trip, and he was delightful to me, and it was birthday, so I sent him a gift. And I got a text back from my sister saying, oh my God, I can't believe how much he likes this. Here's a picture of him playing with it. And I could just feel that elation filling my body, and I had a big grin on my face. Before my mind was busy trying to decide, is this okay? How does my sister feel about this? Will they expect this all the time? All the things that happen. But I did not miss, oh, this is joy. I truly was just joyful that he was so happy. I didn't expect that occurrence. You know, It was unexpected. And if I'd been sitting around waiting, well, gee, you know, are they going to call me about this? You know, who knows? I was really preoccupied with this talk, so it wasn't coming up for me. But, but, and that was the joy. That was, that's part of why the joy was there. Is I wasn't looking for it. It just, here's a text with a picture of a kid having a great time. Seeing the arising and seeing it pass away. It comes up, it goes away, it's here, it's gone. Now when I talk about it, there's a little joy because I'm recalling it. There's a joy in this moment recalling it. But it is not the same as the elation I felt at the moment. It's gone. This has changed. It's all different now. The conditions have changed. Everything is different. When Ajahn Chah was talking about this, he talked about all the practices that we engage in in our practice. Meditation and walking and the way we think and the way we look at and all of the things that we can notice about things and that there are... uh, states that we might achieve and there is the, the feeling of equanimity and the feeling of happiness and the feeling of this and that. And he said, that's all great, but right view is the understanding that all these things are uncertain. All the teachings in this world can be taken can be contained in this one teaching, anakam, which is impermanence. Think about it. I've searched for over 40 years as a monk, and this is all I could find. That and patient endurance. Patient endurance. A key feature. Not only paying attention to the the arising and falling in the moment, but the willing to continue to show up for it over and over and over, noticing, not giving up. He then said, we must be patient. The most important thing is kanti, patient endurance. Don't throw out the Buddha, what I call uncertainty. Don't throw that away. There was a a Tibetan uh, practitioner, master named Atisha, and he has a long list of things that are, are important. And he says, the highest moral practice is a peaceful mind. The highest patience is humility. So I found that interesting, that those were the two things that came together in this list. The highest moral practice is a peaceful mind. The highest patience 
is humility. Patience is humility. So, so what did the Buddha say? So in the, um, in the introduction to the book that Gil Fronstel did last year called The Buddha Before Buddhism, there is a, uh, in the introduction to this book, he said, while peace is the most commonly mentioned Buddhist goal in the Book of Eights, Purity is the most frequent word used for the goal of non-Buddhists. So people who would come to him and say, oh, teacher, what, you know, the purity is what's important here, or this feature is important, he'd say, hmm? <laughs> so in the discourse to Pasura, there is this that the Buddha said. They say, only here is purity. They say, no other doctrines are pure. Entrenched in truths of their own, they call good whatever they depend on. To which the Buddha says, If grasping to a view and disputing, they say, This alone is true. Tell them, In this dispute, you have no opponent here. I am not going to engage in this. Because this is not what's important. He said, from those who live without opponents, who don't counter views with views, who don't gasp anything here as ultimate, what kind of an opponent do you get? This idea that there is an ultimate truth, that this is what's really true and I have to hold on to this, is folly. It's not ultimate because it's not constant. It's not unchanging. Everything changes Everything is impermanent. It arises and passes away. That this is always right and good can't be substantiated. This is really a radical idea. We cannot hold on to views. One can only try to see clearly these conditions, this feeling, this thing that is happening now, this event, this is how it is now. We can't know how it will unfold. It is not the same even for us. We can't say, if I always do this, this is what will happen. We can't say that. We sit down on the cushion and we say, okay, we have a very peaceful meditation. Now I've got it. From now on, I'll just do the same thing every time and it will always be peaceful. We know this is not the case. We know this is not the case. What we can do is see See our own heart and mind in this moment. See it clearly. Don't be blinded by what we expect to see. Don't be blinded by what we wish to see. But just see it. Anger arises. Okay, anger is here. We don't have to own it. We don't have to justify it. We don't have to hold on to it. But we do need to see it. Oh, anger is here. And when we can look at it that clearly, that cleanly, without justifying it, it doesn't actually stick around. (laughs) We can see it. We can see the energy of the anger going up and down. To practice being not sure... We have to practice being really open. It's a risky practice. To be willing to meet whatever shows up in any moment is a risky practice. It's not safe. (laughs) If safety is to always be able to predict what's going to happen, If safety is to see things stay the same, 
then this practice is not a safe practice. But as it turns out, safety lies in realizing that we can show up and see it just as it is and not be buried by it and not be lost in the story that we brought to the moment. To not be attached to what we want to be there. True humility. This wanting something to be what we expect it to be or what we would like it to be uh, is the basis for what's psychologically called uh, confirmation bias. You know, where we we confirm what we believe because that's what we're looking for. (laughs) And we just don't see all the stuff that doesn't confirm what we believe. We just don't see it. We're not looking there. When we speak of impermanence, very often what we put our attention on is the endings. You know, it's impermanent, it goes away, it changes. We think about, oh, it's stopping, it's ending. What this means is we're not very often looking for it beginning. We're not catching when something arises because we're paying so much attention to what just stopped, what has finished, what has gone away. When we think of impermanence, we think, oh, it's ended. But really, it's about change. And change is a process. It's a, it's a condition. Things are always arising and passing away. It's, it's always, always. It's just. It's just. This is what's happening now. This is what's happening now. So this tendency to kind of see life through the rearview mirror of oh this is oh this is what happened oh did anybody see that oh can i get that back oh i think i know how that came up this tendency to always think about things backward is somewhat balanced by a, a, an additional tendency to project forward that it's always going to be this way okay my experience was this happened so this is, this is what always happens when this happens, right? We have a tendency to project forward into the future and think, oh, and then we expect this is what's going to happen when that arises. But that is not necessarily true, and very often is not true. We act as if it will always be this way. But the Pali word for impermanence, anaka, really means inconstant. It doesn't mean ending. It just means inconstant. Not permanent, not reliable. Not reliable. So if we can be aware of the fact that things are not reliable, they come, they go, we don't know what's going to happen, this is going to help us not be so attached to our surety our views about this is what must be true. This is what's true and beautiful. This is how one should behave. It will help us stop judging ourselves and judging others by some standard that probably is arbitrary, is based on some expectation, some view of how we would like it to be. It doesn't mean that how we would like it to be is wrong, by the way. It doesn't mean that one doesn't have opinions or doesn't have desires or intentions. In fact, intention is a very important part of seeing things clearly. What we want to be able to do is see impermanence not as a thing, but as a process. It's a process. It's going on. It's like the breath. When you think of a breath, you're really talking about breathing. You know, can you grab a breath and hold on to a breath? You're really talking about a process of the air moving into the body, into the cells. That same breath is not the breath that you expel. It goes through a whole lot of other things 
in the body, and what you expel is more air. They may both be air, but it's not a breath, not an identified breath. It's a process. Breathing is a process. And so is everything that we encounter in our experience. It's a process of change. The moment of experience seen with mindfulness is just a moment of experience seen with mindfulness. Experiences, thoughts, feelings come and go. They arise, they pass away. Whether we see them as a timeline, whether we see them as everything happening simultaneously or a curve or a point, it's just a process. What we cling to is some kind of residue story. This is how I got here. This is how it arose. This is what it means. And we project the meaning and consequence into the future. And we say, ah, this is important. This important thing has to be true. We want, we want control. You know, we're just more comfortable with control, right? It just feels safer. If I'm walking, and it's my intention to walk, then I move forward. As soon as I no longer have the attention, I stop walking. When I no longer have the intention to move forward, I'm no longer moving forward. Intention is an important part of our experience. Attention is an important part of our experience. Where are we placing our attention? What are we noticing? How do we, how do we experience this moment? In the moment, when something arises, we don't necessarily have judgment about it. The judgment actually comes later. The judgment is in that part where we're justifying what we feel or explaining what we feel or what the emotion is or what the experience is. Judgment comes in there. But then judgment arises. And we have a choice of continuing the story about the judgment or just saying, oh, judgment is here. Judgment. We can call it and we can let it go. We don't actually have to become entangled with it. We don't actually have to grab up onto it. With any experience we have, we can just, oh, this is the experience. And that's all. That takes a lot of practice of just watching the mind, watching thoughts arise and pass away. It takes a lot of practice. And with that practice comes the confidence of being able to say, it's okay not to be sure. Paradoxically, the not the uncertainty gives rise to more confidence. The confidence that like, like a wave, we can sustain turbulence. So, you know, a wave is not a thing either. It's, it's, a, it's a process. So there's water, and there's a disturbance that moves through the water and moves on, and the water just goes up and down. The water molecules just go up and down. They're not following the wave. They're just going up and down. It's the the wave that is moving. We can be like that. We can see ourselves go up and down. We don't have to be swept into or swept away by something that we're thinking. When we truly embrace impermanence, then awareness and the importance of intention Reflection and mindfulness take on a much more important part of our lives. We become, we develop a capacity for just seeing things as they are, for just seeing, for seeing clearly. 
I'm not so worried about what we do. Because when we see clearly, we're going to make choices that don't cause harm. We become aware of the process and we become less attached to all the meanings that we want to establish around there. We give up the notion of being sure. Not sure. Not sure. I learn over and over the habits of my thoughts. The habits of thoughts. What happens when this arises? Oh, you know, I have a tendency to do X. I have a tendency to do that. Oh, that's interesting. Then I can reflect on that. Is that a wise thing for me to do? I don't know. Not sure. What happens when this happens? We develop discernment around our seeing clearly. Oh, look at that. There I go again. Huh. How interesting. It's not a judgment so much as an understanding, a knowing, a knowing how the mind works, what the habits of mind are, makes us much more willing to say, you know, I'm not sure what's going to happen now. Hmm. <laughs> not sure about this. We can experience, we can see that what we experience is enough. It doesn't have to be something else. We don't have to be something else. We don't have to be better. We don't have to judge ourselves. We just see, oh, this is the way it is. Oh. No holding no rejecting, we're no longer tied to wishing things were otherwise. Oh, we see when suffering arises and we say, ouch, Mm. I'm not going to do that again. I'd like to not do that again. I hope I don't do that again. With dedication to an ethical life, with wisdom and mindfulness, with a kind heart, we create the conditions for each moment. So when we see, ooh, that was not kind, ow, we can feel the disturbance in the heart and we can say, ow. I don't want that to be true. I don't want that. I'm not going to do that again. We can say, I'm not going to hold on to that. I had a, 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 play, a moment this afternoon when I was quite irritated with someone. And I recognized that I was growly. Let's call it growly. I could just feel, and I, and I, it arose also, this is really unpleasant how growly I'm feeling. And I realized there was absolutely nobody who could affect that growliness except me. Whatever the other person did had nothing to do with, I was growly. And I could hold on to being growly or I could say, enough already had nothing to do with whatever gave rise to it, whether it was right or wrong. Only the noticing growly is uncomfortable. I'm not going to continue telling myself a story that makes me growly. At play here are things like resilience and equanimity, where we can choose when we see clearly what's actually happening. 
oh, I'm causing how unhappy I am. Well, that's interesting. We become dispassionate. We become less tied up into it. And we, we, we don't have to actually let it go so much as it's just not interesting anymore. It's just not interesting. The mind doesn't, doesn't see that. So I have a couple of quotes here I want to give you. One is from, um, from Stephen Batchelor, who is uh, one of the teachers who uh, has written some books on secular Buddhism in particular. So he is somebody who, who isn't strong on Buddhism as a religion, but Buddhism as a practice is very important to him. So he said, meditation was no longer a matter of becoming proficient in a technique. It was about sustaining a sensitivity that encompassed everything that I did. Sustaining a sensitivity. The Buddha's freedom is found not in destroying greed and hatred, but in comprehending them as transient, impersonal emotions that will pass away of their own accord as long as you, as you do not cling to and identify with them. Doesn't that sound miraculous? <laughs> it sounds miraculous. And it arises out of just seeing, just seeing. You don't have to be better than you are. When you realize that these are that all emotions are transient emotions, that you do not have to cling to them, then they don't they don't rule you. So so I want to return to the idea of moral humility. <clears throat> when I can abandon views, the certainty that this is right and good. This one thing. When I can live life with an attitude of patience and a measure of not knowing, not being sure, I can meet each moment, each person, with openness, a goal of seeing conditions in this moment with clarity these conditions, this moment. Not blinded by a moral stance or judgment or belief that prevents peace arising in my heart. When I can abandon views, the certainty that this and only this is right and good, but can live life with an attitude of patience and a measure of not knowing, not being sure. I can meet each moment, each person, with openness. A goal of seeing conditions in this moment with clarity. Not blinded by a moral stance, belief, or judgment that prevents peace arising in my heart. May we all see clearly without the blinders of already knowing. So I have a poem by David White, a very short poem. It's called Enough. Enough. These few words are enough. If not these words, this breath. If not this breath, This sitting here, this opening to the life we have refused again and again until now. Until now. Thank you. So, uh, does anybody have any comments or objections? I'm in the business of not knowing today, so I would welcome anybody's comments, ideas.
Yes, we have. <clears throat> Thank you. Um, well, thank you for the talk. That was great reminders and beautifully, beautifully done. Thank you. Thank you. Um, one problem with um, my anger and my reaction to things is, oh, it's happening again. So aside from just being patient, ha, 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 um, do you have any recommendations for this, please? Thank you. So, I know this frustration. <laughs> Believe me. <laughs> and uh, there, there are two things to say. This practice is not be- about becoming complacent with saying, okay, anything that happens is okay. But it does involve saying, okay, it's here again. I need to go again. I need to step up again. And this is the patient endurance that Ajahn Chah referred to. The patient endurance. If something is... uh, if, If we experience something as worth standing up for, we stand up for it but we try to do it in a way that does not destroy the peace in our heart, that does not say, mine is the only way. We say, okay, this needs to be called out again. This needs to be pointed to again. This needs to be addressed again. This needs action again. It isn't about lying down and saying it's not important. But the resilience that arises from being able to say, Okay, this is how it is, and I don't know how it will come out. I move again. I enter again. I walk forward again. And my intention, my intention is to be open-hearted and to see clearly. And we begin again. And we begin again. You're welcome. Go ahead. So, um, I guess I was thinking about recently. I've uh, noticed that I have a few people who around me who uh, um, have very strong views about things that uh, I don't always agree with, and I also, I, but but I don't have like these really strong views that they do about them. And yet, sometimes I feel like it's important to to say something, to speak up to that. Um, um, I guess a lot of times there are views that, that, that feel very harmful to me that are being expressed or that make it really unsafe for me to really... I, I just don't feel like I can be myself around them sometimes unless I can... I don't know, take up space is a thing I'm, I'm working with recently because I have a mm-hmm. tendency to shrink back. So, I don't know. Anything you have to say about that? <laughs> in in this world, I, I just got back from um, visiting family. Now, I'm reminded of a uh, a card I once picked up in the Spirit Rock bookstore that said, "Of course, your family." pushes all your buttons, they installed them. And I was reminded of the vast array of differences we have. And there are members of my family that are very racist. And they are, they have views that I simply, literally can't stomach. And yet I know, I remind myself that just like me, they just want to be happy. Our views of how that might be are very different. And 
I remember being very conscious of the fact that I was judging and that they probably knew I was judging. And that that, creating that judgment, was uh, painful. Painful for them, painful for me. At the same time, there were times when I, I couldn't just say, that's okay for you to say that. And then I say, that's not okay for you to say that. And I try to remind myself that the emotional output doesn't have to be what I lead with. It doesn't have to be where I go with it. But in order to not be complicit, I have to say something. How, how I say it makes a big difference. Why I say it makes a big difference. If I say it in judgment, it is not as effective for them or for me. If I say it as a statement of uh, clarification, of representing another point of view, where there is an acceptance that it might not be accepted, but not an expectation then it feels peaceful. It feels appropriate. I was not always successful. Yes. So, am I here? Yeah. Um, um, I hear what you say, and family really push our buttons. But I have one button that I push first, is pause. I push the button pause to pause. breathe in and out. I'm not going to engage because it's going to be a fight. I don't, I'm not prepared to speak with the right intention. And I don't want to make big. So I, I don't know what to say there, you know. <laughs> it's kind of a, in your situation, to say, uh, I, I would say, oh, um, it's your opinion. You have the right for your opinion. But I, I think differently. And I don't know if that would take to somewhere, you know. I respect what you said, but I don't agree. So I don't know how, how softly and tender you can say this without being aggressive, without they, they taking something in a different way. You know what I mean? <laughs> so so there, there are two different ways of of presenting something. One is to be confrontational, which may be aggressive or not aggressive, but the confrontational where it's a direct, you're wrong and I'm right. That usually is uh, a dead end. Because you've, you, the, then it's set up, this is what's right. But if you can say, well, I hear you say that, but what about this condition? Or, you know, I've experienced this a little differently. Or, you know, I, I, I remember recently being convinced by someone of something I didn't agree with because she said, but this is the way I'm experiencing it. And I said, oh, I had no idea. And it was something that was, that was very important to me. And I realized I had to change my opinion. So it, it is not always, it doesn't have to be, I'm right, you're wrong. Yeah. And when you see that, then it's time for patience. Patience. And wisely thinking, what's, what's a wise next step? What's a skillful next step? And maybe that pause button is the skillful next I step. I do a pause, and I say, let's digest this, because I, when it happened, I feel in my stomach. I say, mm, I was hurt. It's just me. Nobody else is hurting. So let's digest this. Maybe in three hours I talk again and bring up the subject, because I think winning, I never dispute to win. I don't want to win. I don't want to be right. 
I want to be peaceful. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. This is, where is this? Uh, I'm not going to be able to find it. I have too many tags in this book. Considering the doctrines people cling to, it does not occur to me to say, I proclaim this. Seeing but not grasping these views, I knew and saw inner peace. Seeing but not grasping these views, I knew and saw inner peace. Yeah, it goes on, but I think that's not going to be useful. So, I have one more. A sage won't quarrel with people, is how that chapter ends. I have one more little thing. Yes. When something comes to your mind, and you cannot let go, and then you don't sleep all night, you try to listen to Dharma talk, you, okay, I'm going to do some meditation, breathe in and bend around, let me feel my toe and the thing doesn't go away. You spend the whole night battling. But I say, okay, this is just now. I cannot let go. It's going to pass. But I didn't sleep. You look at something. You look at something besides the story that you can't let go of. So you notice what it's like to be this anxious. Or you notice what is... uh, what is sleepiness? What is you put your attention on something besides the obsession that is keeping you awake? That obsession is something that you're mentally or emotionally holding on to. And so if you stop looking at it and look at something else. That's what I try to do all night. Look at something else. <laughs> Here's what I'm going I to look at. I couldn't find a name for it. That's the thing. I couldn't find a name for what it was. Let it go. Yeah. It's not important. It's just a what thing. It, this is anxiety. It's a process. Okay. Yeah. It's just there. Thank you all. We have to Thank go you. now. Good night. Thank you.